going to be in Mark 15, 40 to 47 today. And as, as we kind of make our way there, a couple of uh, comments to get us there. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. And Palm Sunday is a day that is ripe with expectation. There's a certain hope lingering in the air, a, a hope of a, a new day, a new season. Really, it's the hope of new life with Christ, new life in Jesus' name. And for many of us, you've either grown up around the church or have been following Jesus for some time now. Uh, Palm Sunday, it's kind of like the home stretch. You can see on the horizon the figures of an empty cross and an empty tomb. And so it's, it's coming near to the end. It's kind of like this religious countdown that is due to go off on Easter Sunday. And between now and then, that is Easter, our traditions help us keep time. And if you grew up in a, in a more highly liturgical setting, assuming that some of you grew up in this type of context, that's the, the Roman Catholic Church or uh, like a high liturgy Lutheran Church or Anglican Church or something like that, then this time between now and then, it's marked by masses and liturgical readings and prayers. And uh, in some cases, there's kind of a throwback to a observing of the Passover meal, a Seder meal. Now, if your uh, church experience was different, if your Christian imagination has been shaped by the evangelical Protestantism, like mine has been over these past years, then the countdown is, is more like pump-up music. I know that sounds weird, but really it's like Easter is this spectacle of sorts. And so between Palm Sunday and then there's a little bit of a dip on Good Friday, but that's just a distracting moment because it's all about Easter. In either way, however you've conceptualized or thought about Palm Sunday in the past, today is going to be a little bit different. You see, there's going to be no donkey today, no palm branches, no loud shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Today we consider the burial of Jesus. And if you've been with us uh, throughout the past year plus, you've known that we've been moving slowly, bit by bit, through the gospel according to Mark. And this past week, we encountered Jesus breathing his last breath, the God-forsaken God, which means that today we stand in the space between, the space between Jesus' death and his resurrection. This space between, it's what uh, Pete Scazzaro in his work on emotional health uh, describes as endings and new beginnings. And the frustration with these endings and new beginnings, which we could call transitions, is they tell us that something has come to an end. And that hurts because for most of us, endings, they feel like failure. They're like these many deaths and we're uncomfortable with that. We don't quite know how to grieve yet. And so what we normally do, and I often find myself here, is that we, we want to hold on to the old, and we want to hold on to the new. And the challenge is that we cannot receive fully the new until we relinquish the old. It's like the old is, is like a chain that we are clinging to. We are loose from it in the name of the new, and yet we are holding tightly to it because the new brings with it the unknown. 
And just consider the concluding verses from last week's teaching text. At the end of it is, is verses 37 to 39. In verse 37, we read that Jesus breathed his last. And then in verse 38, that the uh, curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was this climactic judgment on the temple. And, and throughout the gospel according to Mark, uh, Mark has been cluing us in, cueing us into the fact that the temple is corrupt that it is the place where injustice and oppression kind of seep out rather than a place of, of justice and unity and praise to God. It has become a place that Jesus calls a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. The, the, the tearing of the curtain is this pronouncement of judgment. But on the cross, and more specifically in Jesus' death, an end has come to that reality and something new has begun. Because the temple no longer houses God's presence, Jesus of Nazareth does. He is the temple. He is where, in the Hebrew imagination, heaven and earth overlap. He is the light unto the nations. He is the place of new beginnings. And he is a corpse on a tree. See, paradoxically, Jesus' death is where we hear this climactic claim from the centurion who confesses, truly this man was the Son of God. That is everything that Jesus was accused of. Do you remember those religious leaders are accusing Jesus to try and get him to be handed over to death? And all of those accusations, he'll tear the temple down and build it up in three days. He's calling himself Messiah, King, etc., etc. The centurion looks at how Jesus dies and he says, Truly this man was the Son of God. Everything he said and was said about him holds up. An end has come in Jesus' body and it releases a new beginning. But that new beginning has yet to begin. This is the transition, it's the space between. And for some, like those who abandoned Jesus, his, his disciples, a dead Messiah meant a failed Messiah, like death was the end, period. Jesus' death was their end. That's why we see in other gospels, like Peter, he just dips out and he's like, I'm going fishing. He turns away this discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus thing is just not going to pan out. Because Jesus' death was their end. But for others, like the centurion, Jesus' death, it released a whole new realm of possibilities. Same ending, different transition. It's like the space between had an entirely different significance. For, for one, death is the end, and another, death is the place where new beginnings are born. This is where I want us to go, is to that space between. Because you might be asking, well, what does that mean for the transition? Like, Jesus is dead, now what? This is where I want us to conclude that that place between death and resurrection, and more specifically, the implications for being with Jesus here. And in routes to that, but before we do that, I just let's attend to our passage. Let's just survey the responses to Jesus because this is where Mark begins to tease out and build resurrection tension. 
And, and in doing so, he kind of frames a response for us of how we might identify with Jesus. So, finally, Mark fifteen forty. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed Jesus and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And right here, for, for the first time in Mark's gospel explicitly, we encounter Jesus' other followers. And now, there have been other moments earlier in Mark where he hints that there is a broader group other than the 12, the disciples that are following Jesus. We see this in little moments in chapter 4 and one of Jesus' many sea-crossing scenes. We see that there are other boats that are also with him, and it doesn't really add a lot of texture to the narrative at that point, but it's this hint that, huh, who are those other people with him? And then in chapter 9, there's this really interesting moment where uh, John points out that there there's some other people who are casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he's like, Jesus, you got to shut that down. Because the casting out of demons, that was a specific ministry given to the disciples. So like a, t- a tinge of envy, jealousy, maybe. But Jesus says this really weird thing. He says, if they're not against us, they're for us. So there's that. But now... Here in verse 40, what was kind of squishy and ambiguous and vague is now explicit. And we meet a group of women of all people who in Jesus' day have no agency. They have no agency. And yet there they are with Jesus. And and remember that language. That's not just a, a preposition. That is a loaded preposition because that is the call. And in Mark 3.14, it is the call that Jesus extends to his disciples to be with him. And there they are. They came up with Jesus to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is where Jesus said all along he was going to be handed over into the hands of men. They would kill him and three days he would rise. So there they go. They are with Jesus. And more, we read that they followed. And and an expression of their following, they cared for Jesus' needs. So we could say it this way, that these women have been true disciples all along. Because they've been following Jesus since the Galilee, which is where his ministry jumped off in the first place. And yet, check this out, despite all of this, Mark also hints right here that their watching may not be the kind of observation that leads to perceiving, that that is truly seeing who Jesus is. Tim Gombas, a Bible scholar, he describes this as, as these like dynamics of drift at play. And specifically, he goes on to say this. He says, Mark uses a term for their watching. That is the the watching of the women in verses 40 and 47. It is thoreo. He uses thoreo elsewhere um, of mere observation and not true perception that leads to understanding. It is indeed remarkable that the women are there. So they're observing Jesus. For they are more faithful than the twelve who have long since abandoned Jesus out of self-preservation. At the same time, Mark indicates a threatening scenario in which the dynamics of drift away from Jesus that overtook the disciples may be at work here among the women. So, like Peter who followed Jesus at a distance and ultimately denied him, remember that three times? The women also watched from a distance. It's the exact same phrase that Mark employs. 
And it makes us wonder, what does Jesus' end mean for them? See, if they've been following Jesus and caring for his needs and he ends, what does that mean for them? What, what will their transition be? Now, Mark doesn't say right here the intent is for us to keep reading. We'll get there next week, so come back for that one. Instead, we're introduced to another apparent follower of Jesus, another response to who Jesus is. We see that in verse 42. Go there with me. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, and so it's Friday. And as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, who, you know, he's a prominent member of the council. This is the the council we know as the Sanhedrin. He was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly. You could could translate that, he took up courage, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. It's like he doesn't even care what Joe just said. He's like, well, Jesus is dead already. So then he asks the centurion if, if Jesus already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth. He took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. See, unlike the twelve who fled out of self-preservation, Joseph risked his reputation. And you could go so far as to say his life to identify with Jesus' body. It is no small thing for Joseph to appeal to Pilate in this moment. And what's interesting is is this is not just a special dispensation for Jesus. It's it's a common practice. There's a historian around Jesus' time named Josephus, and he accounts for other moments where uh, crucified people were taken down before the sun set. And it was almost like this... um, recognition, a, a, a symbiotic relationship between the ruling powers and the Jewish people. And so what Joseph is doing here has precedent historically, and yet it still is a huge risk because remember, he's a part of the Sanhedrin. To identify with Jesus's body by taking it down from the cross, it recasts his character into a different story the story of allegiance to Jesus. See, for in this act, uh, Joseph, he cuts against the grain of the group that defines him. If you recall, the Sanhedrin is the very group that like kind of manipulated Pilate and stirred up the crowds to call for Jesus to be crucified. And so here, here we find Joseph of Arimathea moving against the grain of the group that defined him. And like a true disciple, just, just like the woman who anointed Jesus' body in chapter 14, therefore like, uh, performing a beautiful service for Jesus, Joseph does something similar. He, he lets go of his reputation so he might hold on to something new, namely the kingdom of God. And that's not a a logical leap. We actually see in verse 43 that that Mark notes that Joseph himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Jesus ignites for Joseph the reality of the kingdom of God because apparently Jesus' death marked more than the end. It was caught up in the kingdom and Joseph wanted a part. So he identifies with his body. Pay attention to that. 
And right here, it's as though Mark is incorporating this unexpected cast of disciples near the end of his whole gospel. We meet the centurion, the women, and Joseph himself, who all see some sort of hope on the horizon with Jesus. And indeed, there is hope in Mark that death is not the end. I mean, Jesus himself in his passion predictions, he says that the Son of Man will be delivered over into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days... He'll rise. But what does that mean for the in-between? What does that mean for the transition? And more so, like, how do we make sense of life between death and resurrection? And for that, I want us to start the beginning of the end. So, so turn with me on over uh, to one of Peter's New Testament letters. This is 1 Peter 3. It's going to be near the end. If you hit James, it's just the one right after that. So keep flipping over to the right. And as we come to Peter's letter here, we're going to talk about baptism, unity, and spiritual beings. And you may recall that Peter, who's the author of this New Testament letter you just flipped on over to, that he is Mark's eyewitness testimony. He's the one who gives life and shape to what we have read all along in the gospel according to Mark. And and though Peter abandoned Jesus in in his darkest hour, we read in the gospel according to John that Peter is received and restored and covered in the forgiveness of Jesus. And from that place, the covering of forgiveness, what Jesus calls the the blood of the new covenant, in that place of forgiveness, Peter goes on to lead this Jesus movement and, and to write letters such as the one we are about to look at to encourage followers of Jesus who are undergoing persecution for identifying with Jesus' body. So picking up in chapter 3, verse 18, we read this. For God also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you, that is y'all, to bring y'all to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamations to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven in is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. No doubt, this needs some unpacking. And you may be wondering, what in the world does this weird section from this letter of Peter have anything to do with Jesus' burial? I'm so glad that you have asked. So uh, we're going to unpack this. And, and as we do so, just remember these questions. Just How do we make sense of life between death and resurrection? In other words, what is Jesus doing in the tomb and what does that mean for us? When we pick up in verse 18, we actually see this dramatic and beautiful claim that Jesus, who's the Christ, that's a Greek translation of Messiah, the anointed one. So, Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it is a stand-in for who he is. So it's like a title. We see that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, bringing us to God. And, 
And what's helpful is, is the previous four verses, verses 14 to 17, kind of color that dramatic claim. And in those verses, Peter essentially says that there's blessing and suffering, which is like, um, Peter, what? <laughs> well, keep going, keep going. So there's blessing and suffering, for in the place of suffering, we actually identify further with Jesus' body. And the line that draws that out is specifically in verse 15. And Peter says this, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And that might be a bit of an elusive line. See, this idea here is this isn't that your body is bad and that your inner life, your heart, your soul is good. Therefore, your body can be tainted and damaged and beaten and destroyed and ultimately just go to the dirt because you're just worm food anyways. No, it's not this at all. Like Peter has a whole view of the person where your body matters. And what's happened to your body matters. But what he's saying is in your hearts, in who you are, in your inner being, revere Christ as Lord. That is, recognize that Jesus is the one who reigns. You could say it this way, believe that Jesus truly is King. And so he says, there's blessing in suffering, therefore revere Christ as Lord. And, and, and when you're doing this, do it with gentleness and with respect. And so, so hold on to that. Hold on to who you are in Christ. Live according to the new life where Jesus truly is Lord. So that when you are beaten by your master, P Peter's writing to a dispersion of Jewish followers of Jesus who come in and they're displaced in communities, they're outsiders. And so when you're in a place and you're abused verbally or physically, when you're discarded and ridiculed on every side, you can respond not with violence to violence, but you can allow that violence to come into your body and like Jesus, it can go no further. So you actually absorb it in yourself so the violence can end in your body. And in doing so, it will shame your attacker, your accuser. Then, from that spot, from the second part of verse 18 through 22, we turn the corner. So there's this encouragement to stand in Christ, to be situated firmly in Him. And then it gets a little weird, at least it does uh, for us. <laughs> because we start saying about, baptism and spiritual beings and the ark and Noah and that kind of stuff. And so for a little help with this whole topic, here's uh, Bible and language linguistic scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. He's commenting on this passage and he has this to say, to understand what's going on in Peter's head, uh, we have to understand a concept that scholars call typology. And he goes on to define typology as the following. It's, it's kind of a, a prophecy. So it's a nonverbal prophecy. If prophecy is um, God's word coming through God's people for his people, um, this is this. A, a typology is an event, a person, or institution that foreshadows something that will come, but which isn't revealed until after the fact. So, for example, um, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, he will call Adam a type of, of Christ. That is, Adam's humanity pointed forward to something about Jesus' humanity. And in this case, it's the, the human fallout and the restoration through grace. And that's in Romans 5 that we see that mapped out. So similarly, 
Peter uses typology. And what he does in this passage is he's linking the great flood in Genesis 6, especially the Sons of God event in verses 1 to 4, as pointing forward, foreshadowing what would happen during baptism, the gospel proclamation, and resurrection. If we say this another way, Peter's essentially talking about the time between, the, the moment between death and resurrection. And so let me map this out because the payoff is huge. So connecting with Peter's thought, go ahead and, and um, keep your finger right there and then flip all the way back to the beginning. This is, um, go all the way back. If you hit the table of contents, you went too far. <laughs> Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that, their daughter, that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Who are they? Uh, And also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. So welcome to a 3,000-year-old conversation about who the Nephilim and the sons of God are. We will by no means cover this exhaustively. Uh, Suffice it to say, there are a lot of questions that emerge here. Feel free. uh, Like, let's set up a conversation and we'll use a whiteboard and we'll have tons of fun with this. But for our purpose today, here's the point. Peter assumes that we know about this passage in Genesis 6, the the flood narrative. That as, as God looked out over the face of the earth, he saw that humanity's disposition, their inclination was to evil all of the time. They were horrendously bent toward it. And he also, Peter also assumes that we know about a guy named Enoch. We we actually read about Enoch in Genesis 5. He's taken up to be with the Lord. But he assumes that we know about a book who's written kind of about Enoch and in Enoch's place. See, this is a Jewish book that's produced in the second temple period. This is when Herod's temple is being built. It's the space between the close of the Hebrew Bible and when John the Baptist comes on the scene. So it's sometimes called the intertestamental period, but more accurately, second temple literature. So Peter assumes that we know about this and, and more specifically that there was a book of Enoch scribed, written out by an anonymous author. And most of us, we know the stories of the ark. So we know those Bible stories and we know about the flood passage, but we don't really know so much about Enoch. So this is the the Sparknotes version of the book of Enoch. And the author wrote as if they actually were Enoch. And this is a pretty common uh, Jewish biblical interpretation. This is actually how they would comment on what's happening in the Bible is by uh, speaking in the persona of a character of the Bible. And and to be clear, Enoch is not scripture, so it's not in the Jewish canon, the uh, Catholic or Protestant scriptures, Uh, but Enoch was an inspiring and popular work in Jesus's day. It was quoted regularly. We actually see it quoted in the New Testament, in Jude 6, and it's clearly in view for Peter right here. So this, I don't think that this should be alarming for us. See, this is similar to how in a teaching you might hear me quote Paul from his letter to the Romans and then immediately thereafter, I don't know, quote C.S. Lewis. And it's not as though I think that C.S. Lewis is on par with Paul. It's just that C.S. Lewis and his insights might reflect something beautiful about what's happening in the passage. So too, 
with Enoch. Enoch kind of stands alongside and, and reflects something that is found to be beautiful to those who take it in. And so, in this work, what we see is that this anonymous author kind of fills out the story in Genesis 6, 1-4. And the way that he fills it out is that the sons of God are these angelic beings called the Watchers, and they rebelled against God. Essentially what goes down is they thought that women were beautiful, and so they go and they make children. And you can figure that out yourself. And so they produce what is called the Nephilim as their offspring. And this act is an act of rebellion against God. It, it pushes beyond the bounds of, of God's flourishing and what he's called these spiritual beings to. And therefore they are imprisoned under the earth in, in what's called the underworld for what they did. And as the book goes on, the watchers appeal to Enoch and they ask for him to intercede, to stand between them and God, to, to plead, to make a petition for them to be released. And at their request, God says this. So this is 1 Enoch 13.2. You will have no relief or petition because of the unrighteous deeds that you revealed and because of all the godless deeds and the unrighteousness and the sin that you revealed to men. That's a big fat no, if you didn't catch the drift. So when Peter has this in mind about the watchers and the underworld, and he thinks about what it means for Jesus to be king with all authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth, his mind goes here. And there's this theological analogy, this connection between the events in Genesis 6 with the gospel and the resurrection. In other words, Peter considered these events to be foreshadowing the things that would come in the wake of Jesus. And unpacking this theological analogy, here's Dr. Heiser saying it better than I can. Just as Jesus was the second Adam for Paul, Jesus is the second Enoch for Peter. Enoch descended into to the imprisoned fallen angels to announce their doom. So too, the passage in Peter's letter has Jesus descending to these same the spirits in prison the fallen angels, to tell them they were defeated despite his crucifixion. The crucifixion actually meant victory over every demonic force opposed to God. This victory declaration is why the passage ends with Jesus risen from the dead at the right hand of God above all angels, authorities, and powers. See, for Peter, Baptism explains the logic of the passage and in turn the logic of the in-between. Baptism makes sense of life between death and resurrection. So if you turn back to, to chapter 3 in, in Peter's letter in verse 21, we actually see this. We see that this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. And that word conscience right there, it's um, synendesis in Greek, which is the language the New Testament was originally written in. And this word conscience, it refers less to the inner inkling towards good or bad or right and wrong, and more to an attitude or decision that reflects one's loyalty. See, to put it differently, 
baptism does not yield salvation. It's not that this external act alone is the thing that reconciles us to God. No, baptism saves in that it publicly displays a pledge, a public pledge of our loyalty to Jesus. It is a declaration of what is true in us because of Jesus. And this is the payoff. According to Peter, when does Jesus declare his victory over the cosmic powers? When does Jesus declare his victory over the spirits in prison? In the in-between, in the tomb, when he is buried. See, therefore, baptism, it counts Jesus' death as our death and his burial as our burial so that his resurrection will one day be our resurrection. Baptism is our pledge of loyalty to Jesus as King where we identify with his body. And just let that settle in. And then think about this. The, the church has two sacraments communion and baptism, both of which bring us to Jesus' body. The first, communion, is a meal that we take into ourselves as a remembrance of Jesus' broken body and blood spilled, a, a place to reimagine our life with Jesus and what it means to follow Him. And second, baptism comes to us. So the first, we take in Jesus' broken body and spilled blood as our spiritual food, as often as we're gathered in His name. And second, baptism is our passage through the waters so that we might declare the victory of God to the cosmic powers. And every time that a person places their allegiance and trust and belonging in Jesus and they enter into the baptismal waters, they are declaring, yes, that they are dead with Jesus, but they are also declaring their victory over the cosmic powers. And they're declaring that resurrection is on the horizon. In other words, they are saying, I am with Jesus and He is for me. In the space in between death and resurrection, baptism says that we are with Jesus. It is how we identify with his body. And according to Peter, even the darkness of burial declares the light of the gospel in Jesus' name. That Jesus is king and that any and all who identify with him and his body on the cross have the hope of his resurrected and glorified body. See, baptism tells the story of burial, and burial tells the story of hope in all of life. And the challenge now, but really the challenge is to live like this is true, to hold on to the victory of Jesus in the in-between, lest these dynamics of drift come to bear. And so if you have been baptized, so often in the church there's this call to remember your baptism. Remember what's true of you, that you are dead to sin, that you are dead to death, that you are alive to God in Christ, and that you have made a declaration of the victory of Jesus over your life. No longer does sin hold you enslaved to its powers and idolatry, re or disorienting your worship. No, now in Jesus' name, there is a reorientation toward life. 
and you can live from that resurrection hope into the world, giving yourself away in love. You can actually live into how Jesus sees you. Though foolish to the world, you are wise in God's eyes. Though weak to the world, you are strong in Jesus' name. Though a servant of all, you are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so if you've not been baptized and you trust Jesus, let's do it. Like literally, send an email. This is all invitation. It's an invitation to declare what is true of you in Christ. What we see next week is that Jesus does not stay dead, but he is raised to life. And in a gospel twist, Jesus' glorified body becomes our type. It's a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what our fate in him is. For in Jesus, death is not the end to life, but it is the end to death's rule over life. And in that public pledge of loyalty, we declare to the cosmic powers that we are with Jesus and that he is for us. And in the in-between, between death and resurrection, we remember. And so I just invite you, I want to invite you in these next moments to remember Jesus, to take his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, to remember that he is for you so you can be with him, that even in the darkest of places there is a hope on the horizon and that hope of Easter breaks the chain, their bondage to sin with the hope of resurrection life. So as I pray, I just invite you to take those elements, prepare your heart to remember and celebrate what is true of you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love for the world is such that you sent your Son. It wasn't that you hated the world and therefore you sent your Son No, you love the world, so you sent your Son to stand and live and be who we perpetually fail to be, to be truly obedient to you, even to the point of death. And there, Lord, you vindicated your name. You brought Jesus back from the dead so that in him we too, we too, could say, death, where is your sting? So, Spirit, I just ask that you would draw us into the place of union and intimacy with God in Christ and one another, that we would know that through the baptismal waters, we are declaring what is truest of us, that we are the beloved of God, that we are co-heirs with Christ, brothers and sisters who will reign in God's kingdom. And so, Lord, we say, come, come, Holy Spirit. Let us be who you say we already are. Amen.